Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. But even the frame, law enforcement or policing, those are frameworks that come from the white imagination because the white imagination says we need to be protected from them. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Fancy Politics. Sarah is spending some time with her family and I miss her and we'll be excited to be in conversation with her again next week. And I am so honored that Lisa Sharon Harper agreed to join me for this episode. Lisa has been with us before in conversation about what it requires of white women to be allies to our sisters of color. Lisa is a minister. She is an author. She is a prolific speaker. She founded Freedom Road, which helps to shrink the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. Freedom Road has a podcast that you should listen to. Lisa is the author of a number of books, including The Very Good Gospel. We will put links to all of Lisa's information in the show notes. I wanted to talk with Lisa today about a tweet that I saw in which she suggested that this is a time to imagine what the world could look like without police and a time when we're having so many conversations about police reform. I wanted to not be afraid to ask the big question that Lisa was presenting. What could it look like if we didn't have police? What if we did something entirely different? You know, when we first started talking about COVID-19, as it became clear that COVID-19 was going to dramatically change all of our lives every single day, at least for some period of time, Sarah and I had a discussion that 
when all of the bricks have fallen like this, let's not rush to rebuild them the same way. Let's ask what the new thing is that we want to create. And when I saw Lisa's tweet, I thought that is exactly in the spirit of what we discussed. What is the new thing that we want to create when it's so clear that the existing thing has failed in so many different ways? And as we've talked about a number of times, this is not about the moral character of any individual police officer. It is about a system. So this is a challenging conversation. It's one that I think provoked big questions for me that I'll be thinking about for a long time. I hope it does for you. I hope that Lisa will come back and talk with us again because I could spend days with her on the subjects that we just dipped our toes into here. But without more blabbing from me, here is Lisa Sharon Harper on the question of what could the world look like without police? Well, I'll tell you, it's it's one of those ideas that, first of all, it is not a new idea. There's actually whole uh, movements, or there's a movement right now, the abolition movement to abolish the police. Right now, I've actually always thought of those groups as really radical. I haven't, honestly, I'll be real. I have not paid that much attention to them, but I have been intrigued by the possibility of you know, somebody even thinking that, because honestly, I always thought of the police as normative. When I was growing up as a little girl in Philadelphia, it's funny because I think my mom shielded me from the reality of what was happening beyond our block. And so, you know, I thought of police in the way that I was taught by Sesame Street to think of police, which is they're there to help you. You know what I mean? If you get lost, you go to a policeman or woman and you pull tug on their on their coat and say, or their jacket and say, hello, Mr. Policeman, I'm lost. Can you help me? That kind of thing. But it doesn't take long before you begin to understand as a person of color and in particular a person of African descent in America, that the police are actually not the good guys in your story. And the reality, since I've become more aware of the origins of the police in America, of that whole institution, and as I have witnessed and been a part of the large movements that have been pushing for reform. And this has actually been, they've been pushing for reform for decades, um, really forever. And my intersection with that movement came in 2015, 14 actually through Michael Brown's death. And then since then, been organizing, organizing people of faith actually to get to, to join that movement. But here we are five years later in 2020, and we have the second man who has died by a police stranglehold who has said, I can't breathe and died. And I think that when I saw that, so it was six years ago that Eric Garner died crying out, saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe multiple times. And the officer who uh, who killed him was not prosecuted. They decided not to bring charges against him. Nobody brought charges against him. Yes, he was finally fired years later, but nobody brought charges against him. And yes, we got this officer, Derek Chauvin, we got him arrested. But then they came back with a murder three charge? When you can literally see all the ways that he made conscious decisions to keep his knee on the neck of Mr. George Floyd, we saw then the next videos came out where you could see it's not just him. There were two other officers with their knees on his body who were holding down his body with their body weight and made it, according to the private autopsy report, made it impossible for him to breathe disrupted his heartbeat. And so you have a situation where six years after Eric Garner died at the hands of police officers and we all watched and we marched and we pushed and they decided not to bring charges. Now you have another officer and two more, and another one that stood by and guarded them, guarded their ability to do this in 2020. So I just started to think, I'm like, you know, look, between Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Jonathan Crawford, who all died within that, that one month period between June, late June of 2014 and 
mid-August, uh, actually two-month period, mid-August 2014. Uh, Tamir Rice was a little later around Thanksgiving that year. Between them and Mr. George Floyd, you have a river of hashtag lives, a river of hashtags that is flowing and boiling and bubbling and lapping rocks and growing. The river is overflowing. And when you have a river of the same experience again and again, even with the public pushback, then you know this is not an aberration. This is not a one-off experience. This is, this is not even solvable by tinkering. This is what the system was created to do. It was what the system was created to do. So then you gotta look at the roots and the roots of our policing system are slave patrols. That's where our literally, that is what our, where our policing system began with slave patrols. In other words, with the owners of enslaved people, the overseers and other conscripted people in the area after more than 1,000 uprisings happened on plantations across the South, and especially after closing of the Atlantic slave trade, when they began to breed black people, especially in Virginia, but then really all the way throughout the, the South, when they began to breed us, there began to be insurrections. There began to be people who rose up. Now, those insurrections actually, they started a long time before that, but there was a river of insurrections, a river of people rising up and saying no more. And in the light of that, these slave holders, these owners, these overseers, they formed posses that had badges. They were given the authority to kill they were given the authority to round up. They were given the authority to clamp down on people of African descent who might actually have been free if they were able to run. That is the origin of our policing system. Now get this, at the same time, up in the North, according to my research, you actually had another kind of conscripted volunteer policing system that started in Boston. And so that's a northern thing. It's not about slavery, but it was about immigrants, immigrants that weren't considered white yet, like the Irish, Polish, I believe Germans as well, right? So around that same time, you begin to have this posse thing develop in Boston that is trying to control and confine non-quote-unquote white people, in other words, non-British people, non-English people, in the north, in the, in the Irish ghettos, in the in the Polish um, sections of town. The roots of our policing system come from the minds of white men whose sole purpose was in protecting white power and flourishing. The whole reason, the whole reason that policing began in America was to protect white flourishing, in other words, their money and their power. And so when you plant a seed, you cannot be surprised at the fruit that it bears. You just can't. So throughout the ages, since the slave patrols and those patrols in Boston, what have we gotten? After the Civil War, we got the police, which then colluded with the KKK and were directly responsible for more than 4,000 lynchings. And those same police were directly, they were the conduit, the main conduit of rivers of black bodies that were funneled into the convict leasing system, which protected the flourishing of white former plantation owners because now the prisoners were used as free labor that those slave owners had lost because of the Civil War. 
So this is a way for them to get free labor back. Just pick them up off the street, throw them in the prison and the work farm, and you got more free labor. And usually when they did that, they had no records to even say when they were thrown in. Literally, families lost, they lost their dads, their sons, their uncles, their grandfathers, forever not knowing where they were because they were picked up off the street and thrown into the convict leasing system with no records. And those people died there. Do you know how long, I'm just gonna say it, do you know how long the lifespan of a man was when he was thrown onto a work, a work, a convict leasing work farm back in the time of Jim Crow? Do you know how long their lifespan was? One year. They literally usually lived for one year. And then the policy was, bury them where they drop because you can always get more. And the police were the number one conduit, the people who picked up those men and boys and uncles and grandfathers and threw them into those work farms. The police worked for the flourishing of white men, always have and still do. And so now, what in the same in the same one week period, you have Ahmad Arbery and Breonna Taylor, and you have Michael Cohen being released from prison. You have the president's cronies being released because of fear of COVID. They betrayed the nation. They sold our nation, and they are walking free. But George Floyd forged a $20 check, maybe, and he is dead. About a few weeks ago, we had armed white men storm the state capitol in one of our upper Midwest states. And they didn't even really have to storm. They were standing there talking to the police with guns. AR-15s. Here in Kentucky, too. Yes, ma'am. Yes. In in the era of mass shootings, they did this. And mass shootings happen with AR-15s. And none of them were even arrested. And yet, Mr. George Floyd is dead because he forged a $20 check. Maybe. It is such a an indictment of the stories that we tell in this country, I think, to think about everything you just shared and all of the stories that have not been told and how for the past 10 years, maybe, the top television shows in this country are Law & Order, NCIS, CSI, Tales of the Heroism of Policing, Arresting so often black criminals. Yeah, let me just talk a little bit about law and order because quite honestly, I'm from New York, right? So I know, I actually know a lot of the actors that are on law and order. Some of them were literally like one, one who is recurring. He always comes back. He's in, he's another character a lot. He was the the husband of my very, one of my very best friends in the world, right? So I was really, and I'm still, Law and Order is one of those guilty pleasures. I love it because it's so formulaic and ba-bong, you know, everybody loves Law and Order. But here's the thing that I started realizing when I started to understand how the system works and I started to realize that the new, I don't know, it's not really even the new Jim Crow. That's the, that's the language that Mer- Michelle Alexander used in her book, but it's not, it's actually a new slavery It goes further back than Jim Crow. But the new slavery is prison. When I began to understand that law and order, quote unquote, messaging, that frame was crafted at the time when Nixon was colluding with the Dixiecrats that were coming into the Republican Party, disillusioned by the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. They left. They marched out in protest saying, we're never coming back. Thank the Lord Jesus on the part of the Democrats. We're like, good riddance, because you are what who held us back. But they flooded into the Republican Party because Nixon said, we're going to put the welcome mat out to you. And he signaled to them that we will be on your side. And who is the them? The them 
are the very people who are benefiting from convict leasing, the very people who are benefiting, who benefited from slavery and who were fighting desegregation, who were fighting to maintain the purity of white space, the purity of white power. They were fighting to maintain that and Nixon said, here's the welcome mat. And law and order, that frame, is what did it. And do you know why? Because law and order to them meant the protection of the order that had been, the order that created the hierarchy of human belonging in the United States. That's the order that it was protecting. And the law that it was protecting were all of the laws that were put on the books after the Civil War in the context of Jim Crow that lowered the bars of criminality and focused policing on black communities in order to fill jails and get that free labor and protect white space. So law and order now I see as propaganda. That's what it was. Literally, that show came out literally at the very same time when the first legislation was being passed that created mass incarceration in the mid-1980s. And then it became, it just blew up in the 1990s, right around the same time that the crime bill was trying to be passed and did and was passed because everybody was thinking now in terms of law and order. We need to clamp down on crime. We didn't know yet because Michelle Alexander had not written her breakthrough uncovering of a book. But when she wrote that, she changed the game. She revealed the system. She uncovered it. She showed us what has been happening. So I want to recommend if anybody listening to this has not read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, that is the next book that you should buy because you must understand. You can't understand the uprisings of the last two well, week, really two weeks almost, um, week, and a, week and a half. You can't understand that if you don't understand the perennial shape-shifting of our system of enslavement, confinement, and control of brown and black bodies in order to uphold white flourishing. You can't. And I think enough people have read that book and enough people have been seeing other things like the movie 13th, which is on Netflix, which I also highly recommend that you have to watch. Reading my book, chapter nine is on shalom and race. And you, you have to read it from one through nine in order to understand how this all works theologically. There's no excuse anymore, really, for not understanding this. And I understand that some people are late. Some people are just beginning to wake up to the fact that this is happening. But I want to say, read, watch your movies, do your homework. Literally, everything you need to know is at your fingertips. It is all, all of it is on Google. Google it. And then raise your voice. Because here's the thing, if you are a person of faith, if you're somebody who calls yourself a follower of Jesus, then you have to understand that Jesus was in the same social location. In other words, socially, on the hierarchy of human belonging created by the Roman Empire, he existed on the same plane, on the same rung of the, of the ladder as Mr. George Floyd. Jesus saw empire from the same vantage point, the same viewpoint, the same perspective as Mr. George Floyd. And so if you're reading Jesus as if he is seeing it from on high, as was the king in the purple robe, then you are reading Jesus wrong. And Jesus says, what you do for the least prisoner, you have done to me. What you do to the poor, you have done to me. What you do to the sick, you have done to me. And he's not just talking, he's really literally not just talking about individually. The word for the righteous, but the righteous will say in that passage, the word for righteous there 
actually can only mean one thing. People always like to say, oh, it means two. No, 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 no. It only can mean one thing. It means one of equitable action and character. And you can't talk about equity without talking about the way things work, the systems that govern our world. So what Jesus is saying there is when you set up a system, when you set up a way that things work that withholds healthcare from whole populations, that withholds justice, in other words, just rulings, right rulings from whole populations or favors some and rather than others, then you have not done for the least of these. And so you have not done it for G to Jesus because Jesus was a physically brown, politically black, indigenous colonized man in the white Western Roman Empire, which was explicitly white supremacist. Explicitly, they believed in order to be fully human, you had to be white, male, and able-bodied. So Jesus's brown, colonized body would have experienced the power of their militarized police called centurions in the same way that George Floyd experienced the police in Minneapolis. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. I'm so glad you brought up healthcare because I think that makes the point that changing our approach here fundamentally is much bigger than mm-hmm. hashtag defund the police. And yeah. as we as we imagine, what could this be? Knowing as you've laid yeah. this foundation that the roots of what we have today are unacceptable. There is not going to be a way to change the fruit that comes from that unacceptable structure. So we've got to do something new. A tree. Yes. So as we plant a new tree, we have to talk about a really broad approach. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what planting a new tree could mean? Well, it does actually mean defunding. I don't mean fully defunding because we do need public safety. But even the frame, law enforcement or policing, those are frameworks that come from the white imagination. Because the white imagination says we need to be protected from them. It's the, the danger is out them, out there. It's not within, right? So all the policing, it's brown and black communities that get policed not white communities. White people, white communities are not police. They are protected. The law is enforced on brown and black communities, not on white communities. Rarely do you see a white person in the courtroom for a crime that they committed, especially if it's one having to do with drug possession or sales. Even if you ran over somebody with your car, Generally speaking, you might go, to, you might you might even be charged, but you'll likely be let off if that person is who you ran over was a person of color. Hello. So law enforcement is not what we do. What we do is we enforce white power. So the question, what we, the question we have to ask is, what is it that we actually need? What is it that we actually want? And what we want, we want public safety. We do. But public safety encompasses more than just the criminal system, the criminal justice system, or the justice system at all. Public safety also incorporates the healthcare system. Public safety also incorporates the education system. Public safety also incorporates jobs and whether or not people can be employed and transportation, or even just our lighting on our streets. Public safety is not just to have to do with a gun and a man who walks around with a badge. That badge began with the slave patrols. Would it be possible for us to shift the funds that we normally and have been for for the last 25, near 30 years, we've been placing in our police departments? Can we shift those funds over to healthcare, over to education, over to the very systems that actually create, create the foundations for uprisings in the first place and high amounts of violence. What I've learned, another thing I've learned is that, and this actually is apropos, it's part of the point, is that violence does not follow poverty. You can have destitute, like whole nations that are destitute and not have high violence in those nations. Violence follows inequity. So wherever you have the greatest inequity in a particular city or a nation, there you will find high rates of violence. And the reason for that is because those who are poor can see the injustice on their doorstep. And where there is great inequity, there is sin happening. There is sin happening and there are consequences to sin. Violence is one of the consequences of the sin of hoarding flourishing. So what would it so when we talk about shifting the funds, right? What we're talking about 
is instead of looking at the impact of inequity and trying to tamp down the violence that that comes from inequity, let's stop inequity. (laughs) If you stop inequity, you would do a lot better. Let me say one more thing, one last thing. Los Angeles is beginning to do this. I think it was just this week that Mayor Garcetti announced that he was going to shift. He had already promised, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe it's $100 million. It could be more than that, actually. But I think it's $100 million that he had promised to pour into his policing department, his police patrol, his police department, over the next um, several years. Yesterday, I believe, vowed to shift that money into the services that will create greater equity. That is what we can do on a local level. We have funds that are allocated, specifically our policing agencies around the country since the mid 1990s have been funded like military outposts, as if they are the centurions working to protect white people, as if people of color are the enemies of the state. And that's why Ferguson happened. That's why that uprising happened. That's why Baltimore happened. And that's why more than 175 cities around the country exploded in violence because the police treated their citizens as if they were enemy combatants, not citizens. Can we talk a little bit more about that? What is it that we actually need? Because I think something that police officers would agree with in this conversation is that the police are asked to be a whole lot of different things in communities. Yes. And and part of that is our sheer inability to do conflict resolution among ourselves. And I really wanted to ask you about this because you said something to me when we had our conversation on what it requires of white women to be good allies that I've thought so much about since. You know, I was saying, I don't want to try to lead something that I'm still learning in. And you said, you don't have to. That's not that's not what anyone's asking you to do. And I think that framework that a lot of white people have, and I know that I still have it and I'm constantly like working to shake it loose, is that without hierarchy, there can be no order. And it seems to me that we're like moving into a, a, an understanding that there can, of course there can, many people have managed themselves as communities without hierarchy throughout history. Yes. Yes. And actually, indigenous people, indigenous peoples have always existed in a circle. It's the circle that is sacred. There is no ladder in indigenous communities. And I think we need to go back to that because indigenous peoples are indigenous because they are rooted to the land. They are rooted to spirit, to God. In America, and actually in in most most places where there have been indigenous, there have been colonization, where there's been been colonization, you actually also find that indigenous peoples have embraced the person of Jesus. And they have embraced the message of Jesus because they, they understand that Jesus himself was an indigenous man. They see Jesus through their lens. When you understand that, then you understand within the Hebrew people, there was not this hierarchy until they were colonized. In fact, it was God, God's self, who said to them when they begged God to give them a king, God said, you don't need a king. I'm your king. You don't want a temple. You don't want to build empire because when you do that, you're going to have to conscript, you're going to to enslave your own people in order to build that temple. You're going to have to oppress. You're going to have to exploit labor. And you don't do that because that exploits the image of my image inside those people. You don't need a king. I'm your king. You don't need a tower of Babel. You're going to, you're going to kill yourselves with this brick and mortar, this brick and bitumen. This is not safe. I'm going to disperse you because you're trying to be me. You're trying to be God. You're trying to reach the heavens. You're trying to pose as if you are God, but you are not. You were made in the image and likeness of God, but you are not God. And so it is the sin of empire to try to be God, to try to control everything and define everything, to build that empire. It is the work It is our work as followers of 
physically brown, politically black Jesus to get down off of that scaffolding of human hierarchy, man-made scaffolding, and join the community of creation, join the community of humanity in a circle and listen. Another practice that indigenous people have around the world on nearly every continent where you where you have indigenous people, there is a sacred practice or sacred um, space called the talking circle. And the talking circle is actually just the listening circle. Everybody gets to speak from their heart, from their gut, from their honest place, from their story. And then everybody gets to listen to everyone else and be influenced by everyone else. You see, empire, the number one goal of empire is to control. And you lose control when you listen. You lose control when you give up the right to be the one to make the decisions. But what happens when you lose control is the community grows, the community flourishes, all have a chance to flourish, all have a chance to find their role, their voice, the vision that God had for them when they were created and grow and live into that. That's what we need. We need the circle. We need listening circles. I think that there is an interesting indicator that people want, even white people, want to go in the direction of that circle. Yes, yes. I see that. Now, I'll just be so honest. I hate Marcy's Law. I think Marcy's Law is a terrible policy initiative that has been passed through constitutional amendments and ballot referendums in many, many states. I understand why it passes, because it sounds like, do you like pie on the ballot? You know, do you want victims to have a role in the criminal justice process? That's how people understand Marcy's Law, right? And what it does, the reason I so Mm -hmm. strongly oppose it is because I think it says, here we are in the criminal justice system, which is like a casino where the house always wins. And I'm going to add another layer to stack the deck against defendants who have gotten here in a system that is unjust and are now facing one that is unjust as it relates to sentencing. So that's why I don't like it. But I think that what is behind that initiative belongs in that circle. You know, restorative justice models have that sense of the victim should have a seat as we talk as a community about what we do when we violate one another. Yeah, that's actually really, that's, I love that point. Now, I have to say, I'm not as familiar with Marcy's Law. I remember, I do remember the buzz about it a few years ago, and I remember talking about it with a few people, but it's not something that's been constantly on my screen. What I will say is I have seen exactly what you're saying, the restorative justice, and maybe even a better term is transformative justice. It's the kind of justice that transforms communities, that it doesn't just restore it to what it was, but it transforms it to even something better than it was before the crime or the, the, the offense happened against the community. It understands, it understands offenses against the community as not just crimes, but it, it understands the polis as a community and one that fundamentally operates not primarily on a legal system of do's and don'ts, but on a relational system of relationships that have been broken and need to be mended. And it also fundamentally believes that mending is possible. So it is that transformative justice that actually advocates for the abolition of the death penalty because the death penalty is the ultimate, I think it's the ultimate arrogance actually, because it is the ultimate act of the state taking the place of God to determine when someone's life will end. It also is not does not recognize the reality of human um, fallibility, the fallibility of the court to actually identify, did this person do it or did they not? 
And the reality that the majority of people who are sentenced to death are people of color and African-American in particular, and a growing percentage of those death penalty cases are being proven to be wrong. They were wrongfully convicted. And at the time that they were convicted, the science had not caught up. And so DNA evidence wasn't there to be able to prove that, no, this was not them at the scene. It was somebody else. So how many people has the state killed wrongfully? And and to and for the state to believe that it 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 is infallible in its judgment. That would be the only way that the state could justify killing this person. But as long as there is one sliver of 1% of doubt that there's a possibility of fallibility, which there is, then I think the state will be answerable to God for those it has killed wrongfully. I mean, really, this just goes right back to Jesus. Those who are without sin cast that first stone. Now, you take it to take it down from the death penalty and just take it down to drug offenses, 15 years, right, for carrying a dime bag of, of marijuana. That's the way it was back in the 90s. I know that during the Obama era, a lot of those laws got like got lessened or taken off the books, praise the Lord. But under Trump, they're being put back on. That's his goal is to put them back on. Why? Because they were created to control and confine black bodies and protect white flourishing. And that is Trump's goal. And so he knows he's not stupid. His people are not stupid, actually. They know what they're doing. So restorative, transformative justice would take that system and instead would actually say, okay, young man, or okay, young men, if it's a whole gang, right? And it would sit down with them and it would let them see that they are in the context of a larger community. It would give them an opportunity to meet Grandma Bet over there. It would give them a chance to meet Aunt Betty, Aunt Najuma over here. It would give them a chance to hear their stories and why what they're doing is breaking relationship with the community. And the community would then get to decide how, what will it take for us to have relationship restored with this person who sold my son, a dime bag of crack. What would that what would what would that take? And that mother and that community would get to make the decision. Now San Francisco is already doing this. They already they like I think it was actually about eight or nine years ago, they started a program that they piloted that instituted community courts. In other words, it was an alternative court system that brought young people or people who they believed well, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure whether it was whether it was jurisdictional, whether everybody went through this court system, whether it was a particular like juvenile court system or something. But within their court system, they had an alternative court that where they brought people before the community instead of a judge and the community became the judge. And it was their way of beginning to pilot this idea of transformational justice. What would it look like to restore? What would it look like to transform the communities. There are others who are working outside of the government structure that have been thinking in terms of rest restorative justice for a long time, like Father Boyle in Los Angeles. Back in the 1980s, I believe, started Homeboy, the Homeboy Industries. And he was working with gang members, members, um, young people who had been sucked into the gang life because their, their whole lives had been turned upside down by poverty and uh, disconnection to their communities disconnection because of broken family, but also because of deportation of their parents or, or auntie and, and also language barriers, because in Los Angeles, that's what you have. And he said, you know what, these are, these men are brilliant because they're out there selling drugs. They're out there. They have a full on alternative economic system going on underground. What if we were to actually transform those skills into something that builds up the community? Right. So Father Boyle started Homeboy Industries, and that's that's what he does. He actually built a whole business that is 100 percent run and led and staffed by members of gangs. I love it. I love it. Can I ask you one more? Yeah. 
Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So the last thing I want to ask, and I don't want this to become a focus, but I know that we white people love to write rules for the exception. And I can imagine that lots of people listening will have themselves or someone in their family will have the question, what about the people who are just bad? Like, I hear you. We can reduce inequality. We can do all of these things. We can have the community as the court. Um, we can we can do yeah, the relational yeah. approach. But what about the people who are just evil? And I think you are uniquely equipped to talk with us about that. Like like Trump. I think Trump should be in jail. I think Trump deserves jail. He's 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 just evil. Let's just jail him. <laughs> How about that? You know, if you really want if you want to have jail just for the evil people, let's start with our president. Right. A man who puts policies in place. The thing is, we think of him as being beyond that. He's not. He's just that with more power than anybody else to enact that evil, right? Okay, let's do that. I'm fine with that. But here's the thing. The question is really one of our humanity. If people are human, then there is a reason. There are reasons for what people do. Either they are just simply evil and they cannot be salvaged, they cannot be saved, 
saved as in restored or transformed. And in that case, usually it's it's mental issues. It's actually an, it's an issue of mental disorder, a disorder in the way that they think. That's actually what I think is happening with Trump. I think he has a, a disorder in the way that he thinks. He certainly is a narcissist. He certainly cannot, literally does not have the, the capacity to see someone else and see them. When he looks at somebody else, he only sees himself. So whenever, I love it. It's literally, he can, whenever he speaks about somebody else, he's actually telling you about himself because he projects himself onto everyone else because of his disorder. And so I don't know, I, maybe I wouldn't put, maybe I, I don't know what I would do. I don't think it's up to me. I think it's up to the community of the nation to decide what would happen to Trump. I think he needs mental help. I do. But if we're going to give him mental help, then we need to be giving all the other criminals and our people who have um, committed criminal offenses against our nation into mental health as well, because that's most likely what happened for them. The reality is, is that back in the 1980s, um, Ronald Reagan, one of the one of the things he did that that upset the nation and, and actually started us on the path of um, hyper homelessness and also um, prison, prisons being filled, was that he cut funding. He slashed and burned funding for mental health institutions. He said, oh, we don't need that. And so literally institutions were emptied overnight. We had mental, mental institutions, some of which deserved to be closed because they were hor horrific, but others of which didn't. And they also could have been reformed if you had put money in their direction. But he closed all those institutions. And where'd those people go? They went onto the streets. They became the homeless. The word the homeless barely existed before the 1980s. People called them hobos. You know, people called them wanderers. They didn't call them homeless. The homeless thing exploded in the late 1980s. So, and right now, I, I read something recently that, that said that 80%, 80% of people in state prisons right now are there because of drug addiction. They enacted criminal offenses against society in order to get money to fuel their drug, their drug addiction. And when you look at their drug addiction, what you normally find is that they have a drug addiction because they are trying to self-medicate their mental illness. So we don't have money for mental illness. So poor people especially are coping through drugs, which makes them addicted, which leads them to crime. So let's get it at the root. Let's fund help for those who are suffering from mental illness. Let's fund that. My own sister, my, my half sister is schizophrenic and a drug addict. And she is a drug addict because she has self-medicated her schizophrenia. And she has been in and out of Rikers prison for decades because Rikers, the largest city jail in the whole country is the best place and really the only place that she has to go to get mental health care. Mm -hmm. Do you hear what I'm saying? She doesn't have any other place. The last infraction um, that she had was for an offense and, and it landed her in Rikers. They claimed that she blew up an ATM, <laughs> that she set fire to an ATM, probably in a schizophrenic you know, rage. And why did she do that? I would bet you it's because she wanted to go back to Rikers because it's the only place she could get care. You know, it makes me nervous laugh for you to say like, well, Trump is evil. Let's talk about putting him in jail. But I think if if there is ever a time to flip our script and instead of asking, well, how do we make it a little better for human beings to walk around their communities with handcuffs and guns? Now is the time to say, why do we allow someone in the Oval Office who governs this way and who governs explicitly for the protection yes. of property remaining in the hands of the people who already hold it. So I thank you for pushing me today and pushing our audience and pushing this conversation. It's very meaningful to me. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you, Beth, and, and I appreciate the work that you guys do on Pantsuit Politics. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much to Lisa for spending time with us, especially during a week when I know she is out in the world delivering this message to so many people. I know that conversation had a number of religious elements because of Lisa's background. I think that's really important, especially because of the way the evangelical community embraces that sort of law and order message. I think countering that message from a spiritual perspective matters. And I hope that if you are not a person of faith or a person of a different faith than one that follows Jesus and Jesus's teachings that you still felt included and invited and important in that discussion and all of our discussions. Be well. We'll talk with you again on Tuesday. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsu Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Production. Elise Knapp is our managing editor. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Our executive producers are Allison Luzader, Allie Edwards, Amy Whited, Barry Kaufman, David McWilliams, Emily Neasley, Janice Elliott, Jared Minson, Joshua Allen, Martha Branitsky, Sarah Ralph, Tiffany Hasler, Timothy Miller, and Tracy Putoff. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.